Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. Seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Okay, dress listeners, April. <laughs> yes. uh, let's see a raise of hands. How many of you have seen the new Ridley Scott film, House of Gucci? Of course, starring Lady Gaga, Adam Driver, Jared Leto, Al Pacino. The list really goes on. Um, I am raising my hands. <laughs> okay, so now, April, you and I haven't really talked about this, but how many of you, like me, left the movie with perhaps more questions than answers? Mm-hmm. I, for one, found the film very entertaining, but my little fashion historian heart was sit a fluttering with all these lingering questions. So, yes, I wanted to know how accurate the events and actions of the people portrayed in the film were, but also, and for our intents and purposes today, what was the true fashion history of this family and the historic house that bears its name, you know, beyond the undoubtedly sensationalized Hollywood drama? The House of Gucci's origin and rise to fashion stardom is not something explored in the film, but it is something that we are going to delve into today and Thursday in our two-part series dedicated to answering this very question. Yes, and I actually saw it with two fellow fashion historians and past-dressed guests, Colleen Hill and Risa Britannia. So (laughs) um, we had a lot of comments to each other during the middle of the film. And like you, Cass, just know that we were like, I don't think that was quite correct. Yeah, exactly. That is exactly (laughs) why we're doing this. But today, Gucci, which celebrates its 100-year anniversary this year, is undeniably enshrined in the pantheon of oat luxury brands with its iconoclastic, iconic double G logo and also its red and green striped webbing, which is instantly recognizable the world over. But this week's episodes are not the story about the Gucci of today. This week's episodes are actually the story about the enterprising family behind the brand, the Gucci's, who built the fashion empire we now know today from the ground floor up. Yeah, and an interesting fact that our listeners may or may not know, the Gucci family and the Gucci brand are no longer one and the same thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure many people may know that the Gucci family are no longer associated with the company that bears their name. Yes, and we should probably state up front that we are not going to be digging into the complicated and ultimately tragic story that is at the center of the new House of Gucci film. And um, there are actually other podcasts out there right now, more than one that are doing this, doing this deep dive for you. And then also, of course, there's the book that served as an inspiration from the film, which is called The House of Gucci by Sarah Gay Forden. So if you want to know about more about that kind of whole scandal and the murder that is at the center of it, that you can reach out to those shows in that book to find out more. Absolutely. So, but what we do promise to do today, however, is to illuminate the history of the House of Gucci and the family legacy that was once its beating heart. Needless to say, this week's episodes are not the fashion history of a brand. This is the fashion history of a family. And be warned, dress listeners, this is no fairy tale, even if the family history is stuff of legends. 
And that begs the question, Cass, exactly where does this narrative start? Well, April, interesting question, because if the word of Aldo Gucci, who is the son of Gucci's founder, Guccio Gucci, is to be believed, and I stress the word if, the reasoning to be returned to later in this episode, the Gucci family can trace its merchant lineage all the way back to 13th century Florence. In a 1977 interview with Town & Country magazine, Aldo, who was then the driving force and head of the Gucci empire, claims, quote, we the Gucci family are Florentine. We go back to 1240. We have lived here before the Renaissance and through the historic and artistic evolution of Florence. We cannot disassociate ourselves from Florence because Florence is our spirit in our minds and our education and in our creativeness. This artistic sense is in the background of anything we want to realize, to make, to create. Fast forward 600 plus years later to the 19th century in Florence when Gabriel Gucci was continuing the merchant family tradition as a straw hat maker, a career that Gabriel no doubt expected his son, Guccio Gucci, who was born in 1881, to follow in his footsteps. And I just want to point out here, a special note, you know, those double entwined initials of GG stands for Guccio Gucci. There'll be more on this later. <laughs> There's not a lot on record about Guccio's early life, but the story goes that as a teenager, he was disenchanted with the family straw hat business, which had fallen on a little bit of hard times, and he actually left home to find his fortune in London. That's right. And he found a job at the Savoy Hotel, London, in 1898, although there are apparently no records of his employment. And differing accounts have him working as a waiter, a dishwasher, a bellhop. Regardless of his profession, it was here where Guccio was first exposed to luxury leather luggage, including hat boxes and trunks, all of these things that were used by the hotel's upper-class clientele. And that's what they traveled with. So his interest peaked. It was this experience that would eventually inspire him to open his very own leather goods business. But first, Guccio would return to Florence at the dawn of the new century, meeting and falling in love with a young woman named Ida Cavelli. And the couple were married in 1902, and Guccio adopted her four-year-old son, Ugo. And over the next 10 years, the couple's family grew to include five more children, Grimalda and Enzo, who sadly passed away at the age of nine, but also Aldo, Vasco, and Rodolfo. So Guccio worked for the luxury steam train industry before he was conscripted into service in World War I as a transport driver. And after the war's end, he went to work at a leather goods manufacturer in Milan by the name of Franzi. It was here where he learned the ins and outs of the industry, eventually running the tannery. And this was all before he decided to return to Florence. This is where his wife and children lived and start up his own business. So Guccio opened his first shop at 7 Via della Vigna Nueva in 1921. And I apologize for any Italian mispronunciations, y'all. Just going <laughs> to put that out there right now. <laughs> um, I took Italian, uh, French was my minor in college. I took Italian also extra. And my Italian teacher once told me, you know, April, some people just shouldn't learn a third language. So. <laughs> you are more than forgiven on my end. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> So at the very beginning of Guccio's leather goods business, he was marketing English and other leather goods produced by other producers in his shop. But it wasn't very long before he started making and selling his own high-quality handcrafted leather products, which were produced using imported leathers from Germany, Tuscany, and other English manufacturers. And he was doing this in a factory located just behind his own store. 
1924, the company started making their very first women's handbags, in addition to their other offerings of various types of luggage and traveling accessories, which included umbrellas and walking sticks. Yeah, and in her book, In the Name of Gucci, a memoir, Guccio's granddaughter, who is Aldo's daughter, so Guccio's son's daughter, Patricia Gucci, writes, quote, My grandfather hoped to create the kind of superior leather goods he'd been handling since he was a boy, only using cheaper hides enhanced by skilled dyeing and treating techniques. His own elegance designs, based loosely on English tailoring and style, were pieced together by Florentine craftsmen with their eye for detail. End quote. So this is also the period that Gucci products started featuring the first Gucci logo, a uniformed bellhop carrying two pieces of luggage, which is obviously an homage to Guccio's first career. Yes. And I just want to point out that this woman that you just quoted, Patricia, is not Patrizia from the film. This is a different family member who was actually the granddaughter of Guccio Gucci. So... Not Patricia, not Patricia, just to be clear. So Patricia describes her grandfather as a man of impeccable style and taste. He was also a perfectionist with very little tolerance for anything less than the achievement of the highest standards in just about everything. Quote, from household chores to personal grooming, he expected excellence. Puffing on a fat Toscano cigar, he was the front of house proprietor in the old-fashioned sense, checking that everything was immaculate before the doors were unlocked promptly on the stroke of his gold fob watch. Once they were open for business, he would wait on the shop floor in his dapper three-piece suit, ready to turn on the charm. And we're going to learn a little bit more about the progression of the Gucci family business after a brief sponsor break. Welcome back. So a steadfast commitment to impeccable self-presentation, manners, and customer service were qualities that Guccio endeavored to instill in his sons, the heirs to the family business, although they did not all share his vision. Aldo and Vasco were both involved in the company since the beginning, with Aldo moving into sales and development and Vasco eventually running the family's larger factory in Florence. Rodolfo, however, charted a completely different path for himself. In 1929, at the age of just 17 years old, he debuted in his first film under the screen name of Maurizio Dancora. He appeared in some 40-plus films from then until the late 1940s when he would return to the family business. But more on that later. As for the two other Gucci siblings, Grimalda and Ugo, and Ugo, of course, was Guccio's adopted son, they're often excluded from most narratives of the family and the brand history. And that is because, at least as far as Grimaldo goes, as a woman, her father quite deliberately excluded her from ownership in the company. And this is sadly something that she apparently discovered after her father's death in 1953. And she would go on to lose a lawsuit against her brothers for her fair share of the inheritance. And get this. This is particularly messed up that he left her out of her inheritance, given the fact that it was a loan from Grimaldo's husband in 1924 that kept Gucci out of debt and they were struggling financially and it really helped keep the business afloat. Yeah, and I guess I should clarify because now that I'm looking back at my research, I'm not entirely sure she didn't inherit anything, but she definitely didn't inherit any part of the business that was left to his sons. And what of Guccio's adopted son, Ugo? So interesting fact that many might not realize, but the Gucci brand came of age in the 20s and 30s under the all-encompassing fascist dictatorship of Benito Mussolini, who wasn't ousted from power until World War II. And Ugo was apparently an active fascist 
which added to increasing conflicts with his father, especially after he became an administrator in the fascist government during World War II. So after the war, Guccio offered Ugo money and land to leave the company for fears of reprisals for his son's role in Mussolini's now disgraced and ousted regime. So Ugo accepted, and he would go on to open his own leather workshop. But his thread in our story ends here. The Gucci company continued to grow throughout the 20s and 30s, earning a reputation throughout Europe as a purveyor of high-quality Italian crafted goods. And the growing demand for Gucci products is reflected by the move of the factory to a larger premises in Florence in the 1930s. But this success would be threatened by national politics. Of course, we've already touched on this briefly. When Mussolini attempted to invade Ethiopia in 1935, The League of Nations imposed a trade embargo on Italy, and this was something that directly impacted the Gucci's access to fine leather imports that they relied on to create their products. However, where other companies might have failed after losing access to their supply chain, the Gucci's got creative, and they introduced new materials into their handbags that included raffia, hemp, wood, and wicker. This is also, we should say, the time that the company began using veal leather in their products because they could get it from a local tannery. And, you know, I'm someone who doesn't eat meat, much less veal meat. So I was pretty taken aback after learning about this type of leather. It's certainly not exclusive to Gucci. There are plenty of companies who used it. And it would become a signature of the house because of its soft qualities. And apparently this is a very special process where the calves are raised in stalls to prevent their hides from being damaged. So yikes. Obviously, we don't condone this, but we can't exactly ignore the fact that this is the type of leather that would become synonymous with the brand's identity. Another signature of the house that was developed during the same time period was a geometric pattern known as the rhombi and later known as the diamante motif. And this pattern is comprised of a series of small intersecting diamonds printed in brown on a tan-colored canvas. And this might be more familiar to us today with the addition of the now iconic double Gs at the Lattice Works intersecting points, but that particular edition of the G logos will not come until much later. So stay tuned for more on that in part two. So out of all the siblings, it must be said that Aldo most possessed his father's passion and instincts for the family business. He was ambitious. He was business savvy. He was a doctor. I mean, we should say he earned a doctorate in economics at Florence's San Marco College. But unlike his father, Aldo had bigger dreams for Gucci that expanded beyond their beloved home Florence and even beyond Italy. Dreams likely sparked by his international travels as the company's first ever salesman. So Gucci was apparently resistant to his son's vision. And as Aldo would later tell Women's Wear Daily in 1974 of his father, he was, quote, a man of great taste, but excessively prudent. It was difficult for him to plan ahead, and his sons had to do this and show him the results before he would go along with any enthusiasm. Adventure was not in his spirit. (laughs) (laughs) But eventually, Guccio did come around, however hesitatingly, he did go along with his son's vision in 1938. Aldo opened the first Gucci shop just outside of Florence in Rome, where he moved with his wife, Olwen, and their three sons. However, this being 1938, the timing could not have been worse for a small, growing Italian business. This is, of course, just one year before the outbreak of World War II, when Italy, still under Mussolini's grip, chose to fight on the side of Nazi Germany. And, you know, we just want to point out here that Mussolini's regime was exceptionally violent and retaliatory against any of its adversaries. 
So the Gucci's kind of didn't really have any other choice but to go along with the party line serving the government. It was either that or risk death and imprisonment. Yeah, so the Gucci business was only able to really stay afloat by converting factory production to making boots for the Italian army, in which both Rodolfo and Vasco served. Rodolfo traveled with a special unit that entertained the troops, while I believe Vasco was a soldier, although he would return home before the war's end to oversee factory production. But while the post-war period saw the exit of one Gucci son, Ugo, it witnessed the return of another because Rodolfo's film career was on their decline but after the war, and he returned to the family business, exiting the film industry to oversee the Milan store, which opened during this same period. With all three sons working for him, Gucci awarded them all equal numbers of shares in the company. In the wake of the devastation wrought by World War II, the Gucci's, like Italy itself, worked to rebuild their company and their reputation. And it didn't take long for the company to get back on track, nor did it take long for its high-quality luxury products to catch the eye of international fashion journalists. Of the 21,000-plus mentions of Gucci, (laughs) that's a lot, in Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, and also in the Women's Wear Daily Archive, the company's very first appearance comes on November 15th, 1946, in the American edition of Vogue. And this mention runs in an article entitled The Italian School, which announced the return of Italian leather makers to their crafts in the post-World War II era. And it opens with a picture of Gucci's quote-unquote pouch purse. And this is something kind of like what we, we would think of as a bucket bag today. And the purse was artfully posed in a tranquil Florentine setting along the banks of the Arno River in front of the very famed and medieval Ponte Vecchio Bridge. The article also features three shoes by Salvatore Ferragamo, who we just might have to do an episode about next season, April, because his story is so fascinating, and I had no idea about his connections to the U.S. and Hollywood in particular, so more on that coming soon. In many ways, the establishment and growth of Ferragamo's business throughout the 20s and 30s really parallels that of Guccio's, so it's not surprising that they're both cited by Vogue as continued exemplars of Italian luxury leather goods in this post-World War II era. Aldo would later say to the Gucci's, quote, leather is like flour is to a baker. And with the war's end, Gucci returned to using leather goods in their products. In her book, The House of Gucci, Sarah Gay Forden provides some fascinating insights into the Gucci production process, where a head artisan oversaw a team of senior and junior leather workers reflecting a variety of specialties, each of whom had a workbench and a unique identification number. And Forden writes, quote, the true artists, however, were the artisans who assembled the bags. Each artisan was responsible for completing an entire bag from start to finish, a task that sometimes involved putting together 100 different pieces and took on average 10 hours. Yeah, and Forden writes that the Gucci's, quote, established a friendly personal relationship with the artisans who worked for them, but she also said that the workers came to have a love-hate relationship with the family who had exacting standards. It should be said that she also interviewed several longtime employees of the house. She also interviewed several Gucci family members. So a lot of the information she gets from her book is from, you know, firsthand experience. But there's no footnotes or endnotes citations in this book, so it's not always clear where her information's coming from. Just right. just a disclaimer. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> there is a bibliography, <laughs> but there are not exact citations, which you do see a lot of times in these kind of historical narrative books. Yeah. Um, they can get away with it. <laughs> narrative nonfiction. Yes. All right. 
So despite the renewed focus on leather in the post-World War II era, Gucci's creative use of alternative materials would also remain a staple of the house, including the famed bamboo-handled purse or the bamboo bag, which is believed to have been first introduced in 1947. And it was inspired by the shape of a saddle, interestingly enough. And the purse is an example of the introduction of various equestrian-themed elements into Gucci products that the equestrian kind of like aesthetic and motif remains synonymous with the brand today. And this includes the introduction of red and green striped webbing, which is based on horse girth straps, as well as various types of metal hardware that mimicked metal stirrups and also horse bits. 1953 is the year that another now signature Gucci accessory was introduced, and this is the horse bit loafer. (laughs) Uh, Speaking to Town and Country magazine in 1977, Aldo's son Roberto said that the inspiration for the shoe came from the fact that Gucci, quote, felt women after the war would be mobile and want comfort they hadn't had in high heels and style they hadn't had in heavy low heels. So word on the street is that the Gucci loafer is the only shoe in the collection of the Museum of Modern Art. But I cannot find any evidence of this in my initial searches, and I kind of ran out of time and and actually reaching out and contacting the archive and asking (laughs) because I find that fascinating. But the Met Museum, of course, has numerous Gucci products, although not as many as you would think, but they do have an example from 1953 of the horse bit loafer. It's in this supple light brown color. And it was actually gifted to the museum from the Gucci's in 1973. And you can find ads for the Gucci loafers throughout the 1950s paired with a matching handbag with a stirrup type buckle. So they were definitely creating a look. Yes. And you might be wondering, what exactly is the inspiration behind this new line of equestrian-themed products? Well, if what Aldo Gucci told Women's Wear Daily in 1974 is to be believed, equestrian accessories are in the family's lineage. He stated that, quote, members of our family about 25 generations ago made leather riding boots and pouches and stirrups for royalty, end quote. Well, seems like a wonderful story, right? But is it true? (laughs) More on Gucci family history and lore after a brief sponsor break. Welcome back. Full disclosure, dress listeners, we do not have an exact answer for you about where the inspiration behind the equestrian-related products came from. But we do know that Guccio had, you know, as we discussed earlier in this episode, cultivated an appreciation for British culture and products from his experience living in London. He also had a lot of foreign um, British clientele in the beginnings of his business. And it's not a stretch to assume that appreciation for British culture and his British clientele extended to British horse riding culture. We also know that the introduction of Gucci's equestrian-themed products and equestrian-themed lineage conveniently coincides with Guccio and Aldo's post-war efforts to really solidify the brand's heritage and history. And this is an observation given credence to by at least two Gucci family members. In 1987, Guccio's daughter Grimalda said in an interview, quote, I want the truth to come out. We were never saddle makers. (laughs) (laughs) She might have had a little bit of a vendetta, but... (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And also Aldo's daughter, Patricia, kind of puts 
things into perspective into like why this myth was spun. She tells us in her book that as the Gucci star rose in the 1950s, her father and grandfather worked together to create a compelling, albeit completely untrue history of the illustrious merchant Gucci family who could trace their saddle-making lineage all the way back to 1240 CE Florence, where, as you may remember, our episode began. This calculated crafting of the Gucci lineage is exemplified in the creation and patenting of the family's heraldic shield, which did not happen until 1955. And then it was incorporated into their logo and displayed on the tags in their products. Replacing the uniformed bellhop was an armored knight holding two suitcases. At the left part of the shield is a wheel and at the right part a rose. And as Aldo told Town and Country in 1977, quote, the rose in the corner is the symbol of the poetic spirit. The wheel is a symbol of leadership or destiny. Continuing, we, the Gucci's, are not businessmen. We are poets. As Patricia writes, quote, if the Gucci label was to be synonymous with luxury and attract the rich and upwardly mobile, then my father knew that he had to downplay his family's humble origins and invent a more illustrious heritage, end quote. And apparently invent they did because not only did they create an equestrian created lineage that extends all the way back to the 13th century, they created an entirely new origin story for the original Gucci shop as a saddlery, opened not in 1921, but a couple decades before that in 1906. And believe us, we had a lot of confusion about this origin date when researching this episode. You know, with the release of the House of Gucci film, there are so many articles out there on Gucci's history. You know, you'll find some things in Vogue and Women's Wear Daily, et cetera, et cetera. And apparently none of these articles can all meet up and agree on the date that the company was actually founded. Yeah, and this includes like, contemporary articles today and historic articles in the record. So taking Aldo as word at the beginning of my research, I originally had the narrative arc of this episode structured around that very date, 1906. But I quickly realized that more research was required because there's all these competing ideas and origin story dates. So searching into our go-to historic databases, the earliest reference I could find to support the 1906 date was from the New York Times interview with Aldo in 1970. But there's actually interviews with Aldo from as early as 1964, citing not 1906, but 1905. <laughs> so they ha- he hadn't quite gotten his date straight at this early point. But by the late 1970s, the story was 1906 origin story. And I'm assuming that the many contemporary articles citing 1906's origin for the house have relied on the same misinformation supplied by the Gucci's themselves. So it's really a fascinating insight into the use of art, history, and lineage in constructing brand identity. Yeah, and this is not something unique to them. We see this again and again and again in the history of fashion. And also, this whole idea is explored in depth in this excellent article entitled Forever Now, Gucci's Use of a Partially Borrowed Heritage to Establish a Global Luxury Brand. That's the name of the article. And it goes on to talk about the fact that Gucci, like many luxury brands, really harnessed, pun intended here, get it, equestrian (laughs) motifs, yes, Um, You really harness their heritage to craft their image and their appeal. And the common elements that comprise a luxury brand's carefully scripted heritage often include themes of authenticity, country of origin, craftsmanship. A lot of them have a very charismatic founder, celebrity associations, and of course, their very history. And, you know, we see all of this kind of applied to brands across the board, including Chanel, 
Balenciaga, Salvatore Ferragamo, and of course, Gucci. And as we will continue to see throughout this series, all of these elements will be used by the Guccis to create or recreate this history and, you know, emphasis on the story part of history to develop what we now think of as the history of the House of Gucci. And it's also no coincidence that the success of the Gucci company in the post-World War II era coincides directly with the emergence of Italy as a world fashion center. Italian entrepreneur Giovanni Battista Giorgini is often credited with solidifying Italy's reputation as a global fashion center. And this is cited to the fact that in 1951, he staged what would be the first of many high-profile fashion shows at his Florence residence. Uh, The work of the 10 Italian fashion houses on display so impressed American designers that by next year, Life magazine declared that, quote, the country's couture has become as familiar as its Chianti. The design talent was basically being credited as rivaling Paris in its artistry and sophistication. So prominent did Italian fashion become in the pages of Life magazine that in 1954, the Italian government rewarded the magazine's fashion editor, Sally Kirkland, with the Star of Solidarity in gratitude to her coverage. Um, and, And the Star of Solidarity is very similar to the Order of the British Empire, you know, the OBE, which is an honor awarded to people who greatly aided Britain. And then I guess what we're talking about more specifically, Italy's reconstruction efforts right after the war. But Kirkland was not the only fashion editor to recognize the Italians' talent for high fashion. And by the end of the decade, Milan had really emerged as a world fashion capital, and a fact exemplified by the very first Milan Fashion Week, which was held in 1958, Cass. And of course, you know, Milan remains a fashion capital to this very day. It wasn't that long ago that past dressed guest Scott Schumann, who might be a little bit more familiar to some of our listeners as the street fashion photographer, the sartorialist, well, he and his wife recently relocated to Milan from New York City. And while clothing was not yet part of the Gucci offerings by the end of the decade, the company had finally made the leap and expanded internationally. All those dreams were realized with the opening of boutiques in London, Paris, and in 1953, New York City. So Aldo's son, Robert, who along with his brothers, Paolo and Giorgio, had by this time entered the family business, told Town & Country Magazine in 1977 that by the 50s, with three third-generation Gucci males ready for business, it was time to put our nose out of the country. In 1953, Roberto Gucci, who is myself, opened the first Gucci boutique in New York at 7 East 58th Street, where their Savoy Plaza Hotel used to be. Roberto might have physically traveled to open the store, but it was done alongside his father, Aldo. And it was Aldo whose vision was responsible for its creation. As it turns out, Aldo had even bigger plans for Gucci, and it would be Aldo who would naturally move to lead the company in the wake of his father's untimely death of a heart attack in January, the same year that they opened the New York boutique, which was 1953. So when Gucci Gucci, the company's founder and patriarch, passed away at the age of 71, he left the business and its future in the capable hands of his sons, Aldo, Vasco, and Rodolfo, or so he thought. Right. So as it turns out, the second generation of Gucci's would not alone be responsible for the family company's future and fate. Pertinent to the second half of our Gucci family fashion history is the birth of Rodolfo and his wife Alessandra's one and only child, Maurizio, in 1948. Dun, dun, dun! (laughs) But for that story, dear listeners, you'll just have to tune in to part two of our Gucci fashion family history, where we head into the 1960s and beyond. And believe us, you will not want to miss the conclusion of this story. 
Well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the crafted fashion heritage in your closet next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you. So if you would like to email us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where you'll find images accompanying each week's episodes. And you can follow us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. If you have a moment and would like to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate your support. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. More dressed and more Gucci fashion family history coming your way Thursday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.